0: Cyberbit is offering cyberwire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com/cyberwire
1: Hi and welcome to Spycast from the secret Files of the International Spy Museum in Washington DC. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Matthew Sweet, who is a writer and author of Inventing the Victorians, Shepparton Babylon, and the West End Front. He's a columnist for Art Quarterly and a contributing editor for Newsweek International, and he presents the BBC radio program Free Thinking, Sound of Cinema, and The Philosopher's Arms. He was serious consultant on the Showtime drama Penny Dreadful, and played a moth from the planet Vortis in the BBC2 drama, An Adventure in Space and Time. He is the author of the new book, Operation Chaos, the Vietnam deserters who fought the CIA, the brainwashers, and themselves. So welcome, Matthew. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. Very
2: glad to be here and glad my, my my achievements in the moth area yes. are also
1: being celebrated here. You, you got to cover all the bases. <laughs> um, so uh, the listeners may know, as an intelligence historian, I complain from time to time how difficult it is. To do research on intelligence topics because of redaction, because these documents were never written for the intention of historians. They were written for all sorts of other reasons. And I feel as though I have no right to complain anymore uh, after reading this book, because this is (laughs) going to sound like a critical comment. But I believe I'm saying this telling I love this book, but I have no better idea of what the hell happened in Europe during this time of Vietnam-era deserters than I did before reading the book. There's, there's no answered questions in my mind. So can you talk a little bit about how you did the research for this book? I'll choose to take that as a comment. Yes. Well, I think, as you know,
2: it's, re- it's, it's a really difficult area to work in. And I often felt like I was a paleontologist digging for skeletons that, that were only, um, weren't really even there. And then, of course, you have to kind of put them together. But what we know about chaos is conditioned by the incredibly good job that the CIA did of destroying it. The, the, it was even given an informal name, Operation Destruction, the act of, uh, of destroying these 9,994 files that were kept on American radicals and anybody who, who caught the eye of the operation. So there isn't much to work with. However... There are files that have survived by accident in other people's archives. So there's enough to be able to say that the principal characters in this story, deserters who went to Sweden in the late 60s and early 70s, were at the sharp end of Operation Chaos. And because we know, we can see that there were reports, all heavily redacted, of Mm -hmm. course, uh, but the reports that show there was somebody right in the middle of it relaying data on them back to Langley.
1: One of your sources, I guess I'm putting quotes around that, are the deserters themselves. Yeah. I mean, you, you were able to talk to the vast majority of those deserters that are still living, and that's where things just get really problematic. Um, but let me take a step back, because you didn't start out trying to write a book about Operation Chaos. No, yet.
2: I didn't. No, I started, I wanted to write about deserters, because I'd written a book about, uh London's Grand Hotels during the Second World War and got very interested in that wartime culture. And I did meet a Second World War deserter, um, a, a strange man, a man who became a weird kind of national treasure in Britain, despite being a gangster, uh, not just a gangster, but a sort of torturer attached to a notorious band of South London gangsters called the Richardsons. Mad Frankie Fraser, he was known as, and he was a housebreaker and deserter like during used the to. war. No. Yeah. And so... I tried to to, um, begin to tell the complete and utter history of desertion, and I soon saw that this was impossible. I got rather interested in British and American deserters who crossed the lines in North Korea and ended up, because they were the only European-looking people in the country, playing the part of the villains in North Mm -hmm. Korea's equivalent of the James Bond series. Um, But they, of course, were rather inaccessible. And then the story of the Swedish deserters came my way. I I mean, I I figured I had a reasonably good handle on the idea that deserters went to Canada during the Vietnam War, but not Sweden. And a 1,000-odd went there. Somewhere between 800 and a 1,000 deserters went there. And they hadn't much been written about. And also, I discovered something about the way that their story ended that made me want to investigate it further. So I just started really going through the news reports from the time um, when a deserter was, uh, was given asylum in Sweden. It was generally reported in their local paper back in the States. So I just had a list of names and areas that these guys came from and and essentially kind of went through the phone books of the world trying to find them. Just
1: to give a little context, because these deserters didn't just up and leave their base at Grafenberg in Germany or Aviano in Italy and go straight to Sweden. They took a more... A uh, more the roaming route. route, a scenic yeah. route Well, through the Soviet Union. Some yeah. did just
2: get in a car and drive north, who were in Germany. But the, the, the ones who, who had the most uh, dramatic entry point were the 20 or so who went from Japan, where they were on R&R after coming back from the front. They fell in with a Japanese anti-war organization called Beharin. And those guys in Beharin kept the deserters underground, and then spirited them away on fishing boats into the Soviet Union. Where they were then taken to Moscow, um, hosted by the KGB. You know, they went on their trip round uh, Lenin's tomb. They were shown the sights. They saw so much circus that they, they never wanted to see another <laughs> acrobat in their lives. And many of them went on Russian TV and denounced American imperialism and also told atrocity stories, not all of which were true and some of which were demonstrably untrue. And then at the end of that, when they'd given up, when they'd um, been used up as, as propaganda tools, they were put on a plane to Sweden, given a nice suit, so that mm. the first four to arrive, known as the Intrepid Four, because they deserted from the USS Intrepid, as they come down the stairs of the of the aircraft in in Stockholm, they look like the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and the, and the Swedes did treat them like rock stars at first.
1: Well, you you talked a little bit about you know their their movement through for the Soviet Union, and I, I want to add that idea that some of them were actually put into films that were used by the North Vietnamese. Uh, and the famous uh uh Hanoi Hannah and and, and propaganda directed at the Americans still fighting in the war. They did, and they did in a
2: way. They generated their own propaganda as well. They used to do radio shows, you know, like this one. Well, not quite yes. like this one, that they taped themselves in Stockholm and then handed over to the North Vietnamese mm-hmm. mission. And those tapes would be sent out and played over. Yes, the you know those those um, those relay stations that we would probably see depicted in the yeah. films, haven't we? But their voices telling men to desert and uh, you know playing um, Jimi Hendrix or whatever the latest hit was.
1: I think there's an interesting dichotomy here between the way people perceived them at the time as radical marxists who truly believed in overthrowing the capitalist state and embracing the Soviet system and then those that were actually there because there's a I believe one of the intrepid 4 when they brought them around Lenin's tomb said who's Lenin that's right so that, that, yeah. there's a disconnect there I think
2: they were not they were not radicals most of them were they were young boys who'd never really thought about politics in their life before. Um, And once the Intrepid Four had taken that step, that rather uncertain and uninformed step, really, into the unknown, they then became, they acquired this symbolic value so that other men who saw their story saw that there was a way, uh, there was a place to go. Sweden, the only non-communist country in Europe that would give humanitarian asylum to deserters. Some were radicals. Some were radicalized when they got there by other parties who were hanging around looking for ways of making the revolution Mm -hmm. happen.
1: I think there's also a disconnect between the perception that people today may have about Operation Chaos and the reality. Because you point out that it was basically just a collection operation. It was just making files. Talk a little bit about that because it it seems on face that it made sense to surveil – some of these deserters who are calling for open revolution in the United States who eventually become violent in those circumstances. So th- I think there is a, a mixture, a, a more nuance than the chaos is this horrible anti-constitutional you know, program and at the same time there, there's a reason for it. I tried very hard to to see it from their point of view, and
2: absolutely, you can understand those anxieties. Um, this was a, a worldwide network. You know, they were they were smuggling people across the globe, and also they had contacts with other organisations who were genuinely much more problematic you know, um, uh, third world revolutionaries, you know, they were connected with other revolutionary groups even well, like the
1: weather underground in the United absolutely. States yeah. and they
2: formed—they clo- the, yeah. the, later formed a close connection with the, the SDS and their their ambition at that point, we're talking about 1969 mm-hmm. now was to bring the war back home, to overthrow um, the American state, to really be what to America what the Bolsheviks were to Russia in 1917, so of course this set alarm bells off and created all kinds Of uh, anxieties, it's it's completely understandable, and
1: it's impossible for me, at least in common sense, to think that as they traveled through Russia, that there weren't Russian intelligence people uh, working that that case considerably. And and I think there—it's hard to say 100 percent, but there certainly was a concern from our side that the KGB was trying to use anti-war radicals as agents of influence certainly
2: no yeah. absolutely unquestionable yeah. that's the you know the the, the Politburo minutes are there that, that that show that was their interest the Swedes who they had contact with were also figures who were sympathetic to mm. the Soviet Union so absolutely it was a front in the propaganda war now um chaos is presented to us as a a, a data collecting um, operation and Frank Rafalco, the only officer involved who's ever gone on the record about this so I was I was privileged enough to interview. Um, His account of of chaos um, in his book on the subject is is very, very minimalist. But even if you accept his uh, picture of this as a vast computer with the rather exciting name Hydra, sucking up all of these files on on Americans who've done nothing more radical than to write write something for the New York Review of Books... Mm. um, there are other agencies who they're using in a kind of uh, contractual and secondary way. And you can see in the paper trail that that people out in the field who are perhaps in in military intelligence or in naval intelligence or, or in or in agencies that the public doesn't yet know about right. the existence of are all sending stuff back. And the Swedes too. The Swedish uh, uh, Secret Service had this um, uh, unit inside it known as the Information Bureau that the Swedes didn't even know about at that time who were also cooperating with the CIA and sending stuff back to Langley. So they had their fingers everywhere.
1: Right. And you were referring to the agency at the time known as No Such Agency, the, the NSA. <laughs> yes. um, Even if you look at it in a very benign way, it's hard to not understand that chaos was – if not the brainchild, was certainly um, uh, wet nursed by a name that will be very familiar to a lot of our listeners. And that's James Angleton who, uh, as as successful as he may have been in keeping moles out of CIA, took things to a a degree of – Constitutionality that might be questionable. Yes, he's uh, almost
2: a gothic figure, right. isn't he, Angleton, with his orchids and his gentility and his, and his slightly Anglicized accent.
1: Yes. I want to talk about one of his uh, minions, or, 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 or uh, for lack of a better word, the guy working for him, and that's Richard Ober.
2: Yes. Who,
1: I, yeah, who's a f- fascinating figure in this. Richard Ober, an incredibly important figure in the history of
2: the CIA, doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. He's like the, the missing man
1: of the CIA. Well, he couldn't period. have planned his death more successfully he, if you wanted a CIA officer that wants to say obscure to plan their death. He brilliantly arranged to die on nine eleven, <laughs> and reporters who were interested in
2: such matters were rather preoccupied the day after um, so yes it, that uh, history era- history continued the job that he had pursued throughout his career of leaving as little behind on the record as possible which is
1: bonkers because his childhood was a very kind of surrounded by people that are household names from F. Scott Fitzgerald to these other huge writers and the, the kids of Fitzgerald and everyone just, because his father was a book agent. So Absolutely. he just grew up.
2: And it's extraordinary, I think, that, I mean, I don't know why this is not kind of um, hoved into view a bit sooner, this, because I sense this isn't a story that's generally very well known among intelligence historians. I think perhaps because not all of them are, are literary historians. And, you know, by a stroke of luck, that's the background I come from mm. so um, I I recognised the name made the connection and um, yes Harold Ober Richard Ober's father was F. Scott Fitzgerald's literary agent so we have a portrait through other people's writings of Ober's childhood you know we even know that he liked prawn curry for his lunch um, so all kinds of de- – all the sorts of details that would be in his file if we were able to read that <laughs> right. are are there. And also the fact that his father was involved with all of these writers and artists, some of whom were associated with commun- the Communist Party, with the Soviet mm-hmm. Union, made him – put him under question as well within the institution of the CIA.
1: Well, that's why it's extraordinary that he got such a – you would argue a very important job at this point because his background was what today might – stop him from getting a very high level security clearance
2: but they'd all been through the war together right. those guys hadn't they so it's they would the learned to trust each other yeah. in uh, uh, through you know they had other evidence of their loyalty i think
1: so one of ober's jobs was to to get somebody inside this movement and that's that's a, a recurring theme throughout the book uh, whether there is or is not a mole and we, when we know and you mentioned this before we know from reports that there were people who were Finagling their way inside some of these meetings, but the big question is: Were the upper echelons of the leadership were any of them working for the agency? But because what makes this so interesting is, you really didn't need to have somebody at the highest levels; no. you just needed to make them think. Absolutely, there was somebody at the highest, and yeah. they, clearly they did that. Yeah. I mean, that, that's where you have basically all the deserters thought all the other deserters working for CIA. Absolutely, that the, it infected the culture because
2: they knew that, they, that there had been incidents where they got mysterious phone calls in the night. Um, there were there was a journalist who came over from uh, Germany, an American journalist who tried to persuade deserters to go back to base. There were all kinds of hangers-on who they suspected of of working for. Uh, you know, and the CIA is a trope here. Really, it just covers uh, a multitude of of ideas. Um, and because they knew there were people. interested in them, that structured their whole experience. They entered this deeply paranoid zone, the leadership of the American Deserters Committee, where as you say, everybody suspected everybody else. And what's so fascinating about this to me is that they managed to maintain long term and quite intense relationships with other with each other. Despite this element of suspicion, being impossible to dispel. And I found that in my own relationships with some of the figures in this story. You know, there are one or two people who I talk to who I feel in a way strangely close to because it's taken me so long to do right. this. I spent so much time with these guys and
1: yet I can't tell you that I ha- that, that one of them wasn't the mole. Well, I, I, there, you have to apologize because there's so many names that I, I, I don't remember what relationship this was, but... I remember one of the characters, one of the real human beings, saying that they were super close to this guy. They've been friends for decades. They're, they consider them a brother – but they're pretty sure that they were the CIA mole the entire time. And yeah. you talk that the interesting relationship that you're talking about here. And that relationship
2: still continues. Yeah. And they're still they've been circling around each other for decades. And that's a, a dance that they continue to do. I mean, I, I, I don't know how the, the appearance of the book will change things between them. Because a lot of the time I felt that they were kind of conducting their own investigations through me. You know, they right. all had a bit of the jigsaw, but I was this messenger boy going between them all. And and um, um, you know, trying to work out how these stories fitted together. So I think that's why so many of them wanted to be involved because, I mean, they had
1: no reason right. to be. Some of them even came right out and said the reason they would talk to you is so that you could discover, you know, what the, uh, this guy was really the mole it's or true. somebody else. Yeah, you know?
2: I mean, I had interesting conditions attached to some of these meetings. I, I You know, I, I, one, uh, one of the deserters insisted I, I met him in a parking lot. For instance, you know, proper, you know, that's right. sort of, you know, proper deep throat stuff. That really, I thought, and and that's the odd thing about this. When you're in the middle of it, you can sense that your your engagement with the history is conditioned by all the what you know, by all the the films that you've seen, and so is there.
1: Right. If there was a protagonist in this book, it's Michael Vale. Yes. Who is? I, it seems dramatically older than Much everyone older, else. Yeah. Um, someone who venerated Trotsky. Uh, and you mentioned that it, for, for Trotsky, World War One was this game-changing moment that made him who he was. For Vale, it was Vietnam.
2: Yes, Michael Vail, um, American intellectual from Cincinnati, Ohio, um, uh, had a, a strange and unhappy progress through the American university system, went out into the world, wandered the world, learning languages, living a life rather like a character in a Joseph Conrad novel. And he then ended up in Sweden, just as the anti-war movement was kicking off. And he had friends with he was was friends with Swedish intellectuals. One of whom really appointed him leader of the American Deserters Committee. Now it's it's a strange uh, uh, trajectory, but there he was. He was um, he was uh, running this committee in the presence of all of these very young and impressionable men, and he was a genuine revolutionary. He was, he was radicalized, in a way, in Sweden by teenage Maoists mm-hmm. who he met there. And he thought the revolution was coming and he wanted to do his part in it. And he surrounded himself with these young deserters. And he put them through a very punishing um, ideological... I mean, it was sometimes referred to as ego stripping, mm-hmm. like a one-to-one... Uh, process of, I mean, if, you, if you've heard of that phrase, Maoist self-criticism, right. there was a lot of this around um, in the period, but um, I think it had you know, it had a very detrimental effect on, on some of these boys. But others were still, after all these years, very, very loyal to him, even though they didn't quite trust him and, and often suspected him of being sent in from outside. Yeah, so let me ask you about that. Because
1: he, he learned a lot of languages, traveled yep. around the world, got a lot of geographical and regional knowledge of the world. Was arrested in Russia. Right. Moved to Stockholm without being a deserter. Set up shop there. Used uh, psychology to exploit the weaknesses of all of these young men coming in to make them work for him and to uh, listen to him. That sounds a hell of a lot like what someone working for an intelligence agency would do.
2: It certainly does. And um, and it was said – not quite as he was doing it but in the early 70s when reporters began to cover this story the idea that he was a CIA agent was, was absolutely accepted by the Swedish media and certainly if you, if you look for his name in Swedish newspapers of, of the period this is the existence that he has um, but um, you know even after, after getting to, to know him and, and, and being occasionally he arrives in London and summons me To meet him. He summoned me to Paris once, where I I went to meet him. I still can't tell you really what he is. He is utterly, utterly.
1: Enigmatic. You see, the one that you try to get in contact with him. He said he's in Ukraine. That's and right. I don't to, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> Just when it was all yes. kicking off, there. right? And he said, I mean, and
2: this is this was this was. Uh, I feel it's a, almost a landmark in my life. This conversation. But he said, he said, I'm in Ukraine, uh, or th- he said the Ukraine, right, which yeah. showing h- where his allegiances uh, lie there. Um, and uh, and then I didn't hear from him. And he said, Oh, I'm going to be in London uh, this week. And I said, well, why don't you come for lunch at the BBC where I work? And he said, no, no, I'll meet you on Islington Green, third bench on the right, I'll be holding something red. And I went to meet him and it was a a humid day and I saw two guys sitting on a bench. One was um, a street drinker and the other was this other guy, equally (laughs) dishevelled, and he saw me looking from one to the other. And he said, you got the right guy. (laughs) Um, And Michael Vale entered my life in the way that he entered the lives of those deserters, sort of seducing them in a way and making us all obsessed with him. And now I'm in a room in Washington talking about this guy who is either probably in Vietnam now or in the Philippines. He wanders across the world now, For again, for, for reasons I can't explain.
1: And, and he's the one, if I, if I remember right, that had money coming from God who the hell knows where. Well, he claimed to be uh, a translator
2: translating technical articles, often on chemistry, um, and uh, this, in, this indeed all checked out. And but I, he, he knew less chemistry than a fifth grader. Well, that's it. what one of the deserters yes. <laughs> told me, yes, the, who studied chemistry. But perhaps it shows, you know, let's give him the benefit of the doubt, that you don't need to understand every word to translate a technical article. But the really interesting part was when I was looking for his credits in these journals – was that much of what he was translating was about Soviet, was, um, was um, uh, writings on psychology from the Soviet Union, and all of a very Pavlovian school of psychology, you know, the, the idea of uh, the, the reflex response. Mm-hmm. So these were experiments uh, involving apes in cages being conditioned in certain ways. And I began to see this as sort of some kind of. Version of what was going on in his apartment right. in
1: Stockholm with all these experimental subjects. One thing that I found both fac- well, not both fascinating, exhilarating, and frustrating <laughs> was that you would you would write a story, you'd meet a new character in your book, and they would sound somewhat rational and be telling you something that you'd start to believe that this is history, and all of a sudden they'd talk about the moon as an artificial object yeah. or we've, you know, ETs have been giving us all our technology or these just whacked out eccentric nonsense. I thought it was important to
2: include that kind of thing, because as you know, when you're trying to recover an experience like this, it's very hard to take a kind of bird's eye view of it. You are, you are all you can do in the absence of Piles of documentary evidence is engaged with the subjectivities of the people who witnessed it. And the fact that they went down often these paths into all kinds of strange and conspiracist beliefs doesn't totally discount what they have to say. Right. But of course, the reader needs to understand that there's a context for this. Um, and that perhaps not every word they say can be trusted, although I feel it all must be recorded because right. what else do we have?
1: Well, I mean, I, I found myself reading and being like, OK, yeah. that's interesting," And then, oh, yeah, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's wearing a tinfoil hat while he's talking to you. Um, you am oh, sorry. Excuse me, you mentioned in passing the year 1969. And this seems like where everything kind of came to a head. You call it the year of suspicion. Yeah. And then you mentioned that basically Stockholm is Casablanca of the Cold War, where everyone just yeah. converges – in one place Uh, interesting that you use that word casablanca because casablanca was ground zero for intelligence agencies also and not just in this case the deserters are moving to stockholm but i think it's clear this is also a convergence of intelligence agencies absolutely i mean think about where it is geographically
2: the Soviet Union so close um, anxieties about what might happen if the Soviets decided to invade mm-hmm. through um, uh, through Sweden and all kinds of different loyalties in that uh, community you you've got people in Sweden who are very pro-soviet you've got uh, it's a strongly anti-american culture as well and um, there's lots of interesting things going on in the American Embassy um, which uh, was very sensitive and re- very early in the is the names of all of those uh, members of staff who were attached to the CIA were published in the Swedish right. papers, causing a terrible crisis. So this is a kind of fracture line in Europe. Um, it was a place of great intrigue, um, and it was also a place where the idea of the stay-behind army right. was talked about. Another operation, Operation Gladio, um, where, uh, where 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 um, where it was um, it, it was decided that. Some uh, people, after the after the end of the Second World War, would stay behind um, in Sweden and in other countries too, Italy, uh, particularly, in order to be there as a kind of resistance force if the Russians chose to invade. Mm-hmm. So it's very febrile. You know, no wonder the CIA were anxious about what was going on between all of these guys and where their loyalties lay.
0: We'll be right back after this. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust Plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com/slash Zero Trust AI.
1: What was interesting to me is is the the suspicion, the 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 outright condemnation of some of the people who were joining these groups of being not themselves CIA operatives because they were heroin addicts or thieves or others but that the intelligence agencies were essentially purposely sending bad apples to spoil the rest because the crop that was coming in at this time, these weren't the ideological deserters. These weren't people that were trying to move on from, you know, the devastation of Vietnam or the PTSD or these weren't ideological Marxists. These were just people who wanted to get high, people who were gonna get arrested if they went back to the United States for crime. And you couldn't have planned it any better if Quite, you're a CIA. No, well, I suppose once it was known that uh, Sweden was this,
2: this kind of haven, it meant that that opportunity could be exploited by anybody. I mean, there were people who came who weren't deserters at all, who even had nothing to do with the military, but presented themselves as deserters. And those that were there who were more ideological were sure that this wasn't just um, a bit of criminal opportunism. They, they strongly suspected that these bad apples were being sent their way. But because one of the things that the Swedes were anxious about was drug use. And, I mean, rather unfairly, the deserters were perceived as being a source of corruption as far as that was concerned. A lot of them did do drugs. The leadership of the ADC were rather puritanical, actually, and, and rejected that kind of thing. But, you know, I was talking to a deserter who I met for the first time on Monday, actually, <laughs> and he was talking about uh, um, his, uh, that he would sell hash that he claimed to have got from the Pakistani embassy. Stockholm. com. And that he also he robbed a kiosk on the on the on the subway
1: there. So there was petty crime and, and drug use that brought them into disrepute. Then there are some intelligence professionals who pop up here. And one of the most interesting ones, we we've already talked about an American one, but uh, a Swedish one and Gunnar Ekberg, who, as an author, you certainly may appreciate this and me as well, has the the greatest titled book in the history of intelligence writing of all time. Yes, his memoir, only published in Swedish so far, is They Would Have Died Anyway. God, so good. But he <laughs> this is a man who worked for, for Sapo, for the, the yeah. uh, Swedish Internal Security. Uh, someone who, I don't know, someone needs to translate this memoir because yeah. the idea of his youth and the re- way he got spotted, you know, basically diving down to a sunken Soviet submarine yeah. and, and all this is just extraordinary. <laughs> and he's the one that basically gets – um you know targeted by the Swedish internal security on these students
2: gunnar is uh, was recruited to go underground and to to live a double life in the swedish anti war mu- movement so he became a maoist or pretended to be a maoist and um, attended the meetings uh, took uh, notes on who was there, including the deserters. I've seen um, Swedish files that show uh, that he was in those meetings and reporting on their activities, you know, writing lists of names. Uh, But he also did, you know, he did classic um, uh, tradecraft stuff about duplicating keys uh, by pressing them into bars of soap, breaking Mm -hmm. into offices in the middle of the night uh, to find the members' lists and living the life of a Maoist, separating himself from his family because he knew his mother would suss him out immediately.
1: Well, you we called her like once a year, was yeah. that the degree? It's, like, yes. it's like I can't completely cut her off, but yeah. And 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 and
2: not being that impressed by the deserters, actually, and feeling rather uh, that the the Swedes were were treating rather unheroic figures too
1: differently. Let me ask you about someone where we're taking it from the absurd to the surreal, uh, and that's Cliff Gaddy. Yeah. Uh, Has who, he ever been on this podcast? No, no. That, I think you should ask him. I think I do because right now this man is considered one of the world's leading experts on Vladimir Putin. And in 10 minutes before you walked in the door, Robert Mueller in this Justice Department just announced that they had indicted 13 Russians and three Russian companies for the 2016 election. Amazing. I know. All what, this happened while I was having my right, lunch. Right. As you were walking over from lunch, they <laughs> dropped this bomb on us. It's a wonderful Friday. But he, his desertion is really strange. It's so different from everyone else.
2: Um, the story of Cliff Gaddy, as I've tried to understand it, is one that's limited by the fact that he... That he, well, I won't say refused to talk to me. He refused to answer any letter I sent to him um, or to his, uh, his wife, who's a prominent academic at the Catholic University of America. And uh, Strobe Talbot, then head of the Brookings, um, wouldn't reply to my letters. And the nearest uh, I had to a conversation about him with the institution was a, a conversation with their press officer who said, um, The Brookings takes no view about um, the political allegiances of its staff. But the story of Cliff Gaddy... Well,
1: there is, the answer there was, we just give them a space to do their research. Yes, as though they right? were it a hairdresser was, yes. or
0: something.
1: <laughs> um, yeah. Sorry, Brookings, we love you. But yeah, go ahead. Yes, well, I, Brookings,
2: Brookings is, um, uh, you know, is a venerable institution. But the story of Cliff Gaddy simply didn't make sense to me. Um, for instance, he deserted in, in 1969... Um, uh, deserters who remember him arriving. Um, the dates that they have don't quite match with the time that he, was, he made his asylum claim. And there seemed to be so much about him that was so hard to understand. For instance, his father told the press um, that he'd travelled to Sweden on a passport issued to him... Uh, for to take up a Fulbright scholarship, Fulbright have no uh, have no record of him ever having received such a scholarship, and he was he was a bit of a uh, an unusual character in that he was clearly highly educated, highly intelligent. Well,
1: he was a he, guy, he was a signals intelligence guy working for the yeah. He yeah. was
2: indeed, and he also had family members who were in the same business, and he claimed that he deserted because he was getting a bit fed up of not being sent immediately to language school to ne- learn another language. Most deserters made grandstanding statements about the injustice of the Vietnam War or something about how they felt about about the the fear of being killed. Um, His statements are very odd. And he instantly becomes quite important inside the ADC, the American Deserters Committee, becomes a protégé of Michael Vail, this rather strange and um, ambiguous character, and then stays there in Sweden. Um, and gets involved in a very weird uh, political organization.
1: Yeah. So let, let's – well, before we get to that, it's yeah. a great segue. But the end of that story is interesting too because, he, like you mentioned, he eventually gets a job at Brookings. He's an adjunct professor at Georgetown. He co-writes a book with someone who um, was relatively prominent in the – Well, it puts him at the heart of the news, doesn't it? Yes, yeah. he co-wrote a
2: book with the British academic Fiona Hill – Um, called Mr. Putin, Operative in the Kremlin, which invites us to see um, Putin as essentially an intelligence officer. And this is how to read him. This is how to understand what makes him tick, because there's no other way of, uh, of computing his behavior and understanding his character. And this, of course, is the book. That, that people in both in, in, uh, in diplomacy and in intelligence read to try and get inside Putin's head. And Fiona Hill, of course, was recently recruited by H.R. McMaster to be Trump's principal advisor on Russia, even though recently I read a report that, that Trump had uh, not really known who she was and yeah. mistaken her for like a secretary yeah. or something. It makes you cringe, doesn't it? Um, Fiona Hill's a very brilliant character, um, a miner's daughter from County Durham in England with a slightly broken nose mm. because um, she got into fights at school or she was bullied at school, actually. It's not a nice story. But but Cliff um, was uh, was um, was a kind of mentor to her um, and uh, and wrote this, this excellent book on Putin with her.
1: So let's go from crazy to surreal to downright batshit insane and we move into the world of a man that people who are under the age of 40 may have never really run into unless they're just really tapped into politics. But anyone a little older who remembers the 70s and early 80s will recognize a political figure here in the United States uh, who really changes the direction of this book. So Yes, I like the buildup. Yeah. We need theremin music at yes. this point, don't we? This is Lyndon LaRouche.
2: I'll let that sink in for anybody old enough to remember him. Um, I, uh, a man who ran for president and then ran for president and then did it again and again. He doesn't quite hold the record, I think. Um, and, but who knows? He's 95 and still going yes. and in Germany, so he may come back from exile next time to to offer his services to the American people. But, yeah, Lyndon LaRouche, who in a way offered the hardcore of deserters who'd lost their way after the end of the draft a new home in America... So, those very radical deserters joined his organization in the early 70s, the boringly titled National Caucus of Labor Committees, an organization that was a fairly regular. Trotskyist revolutionary group. In fact, looking through their, um, this isn't in the book actually, here's a little scoop for you. Um, uh, looking through their um, subscription lists, um, I discovered that um, in the early 70s a Mr. B. Sanders of Vermont was receiving their <laughs> literature. Um, that's not to say that, that that Bernie has any kind of um, a, a, a kinship with LaRouche at all, but at that moment, um, LaRouche was a, was a revolutionary Marxist. It could have been
1: Bill Sanders. It could have been.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Well, yes. I don't know. The address, seemed, the, yes. the address looked right to me. Um, and, and so the deserters came from Sweden. They were, they'd been in Germany too. And they joined up uh, with, with his group. Some of them used false passports to come back to the States. But then because they were this outside group who'd been brought in, they began to be the subject of LaRouche's own personal paranoia. And he came to believe that the deserters had had their minds reprogrammed in what he called the brainwashing institutes of Sweden by Michael Vail. As you do. Right. And, yeah. and this caused uproar within his organisation. It's known as the, as the brainwashing crisis of 1973-74. And the members of their organisation were interrogating each other, in a way doing in a more formal and, uh, and elaborate way just the kind of investigations into people's loyalties that the ADC had done. Only this involved long interrogations um, recorded on tape, um, uh, shining lights in people's eyes, to try and find out who was the Manchurian candidate right. who had been sent to assassinate Lyndon LaRouche. And there's this extraordinary meeting at the Mark Ballroom in New York in very early 74 where he says I can't tell you everything about what's happening here but it's a huge conspiracy that involves the CIA the KGB British intelligence uh, the poet Steven Spender yeah. anybody who can name re- really and if I but if if but I have to if you have questions write them down on a piece of paper because one of you might say the trigger word
1: and if somebody right. says the trigger word the zombie army may awake well, and I think that this is – it's important to note that the, the deserters at this point, not only are they no longer have any kind of conscientious objector status because the draft is over, but they go from when they're under the ADC. Yes, they were Marxists. Yes, they were leftists. They were talking about eventually bringing a Bolshevik revolution to the United States. These, that's not what's going on here. These are people carrying on nunchucks. These are guys who are fomenting violence that are, are gone to the next level yeah. of being a true threat. Well, yeah. at least to people's health, not to the government of the United well, States. Well,
2: they were a prescribed organization as far as the FBI was concerned. And there is a sort of, uh, you know, what you've described there is a, in a way was quite a slow process because um, because lots of revolutionary organizations trained in self-defense. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're not totally, it's not totally off the wall, except they're using uh, karate techniques and they have the the nunchucks and they're talking about taking over america in the way that the bolsheviks took Mm -hmm. over russia but then by the end of the 70s bringing marxism to the moon and to mars they weren't about um redistribution they weren't about uh um that more egalitarian side of of socialism they were about kind of making uh, this sort of hyper-developed America. And they said that the alternative was slave labor camps administered by Nelson Rockefeller.
1: Well, a great segue because my, my next bullet point on my paper in front of me is this obsession with Rockefeller. And again, most younger people, because he was only vice president for a very short time under Gerald Ford, they might recognize the name Rockefeller. I hope they recognize the name Rockefeller because he's part of that family. But very few people would understand an obsession with someone as perhaps overtly benign as Nelson Rockefeller. But that's
2: why they did it. (laughs) LaRouche chose these targets because they were people who were um, – who in a way the absurdity helped – The mystery helped the idea that they had to expose the the evil machinations of Nelson Rockefeller. When Rockefeller disappears from the picture,
1: he transfers his energies
2: to Henry Kissinger, a a slightly more morally dubious figure.
1: I made a partial list of what what Rockefeller was blamed for by LaRouche. It was causing the food crisis of the 70s, the energy crisis of the 70s, the impeachment of Richard Nixon, the assassination of Malcolm X and JFK, the flu – slave labor camps in the arctic and then there's a I just that's where I stopped cuz I'm just like I can't type all this stuff up it was basically the com- it's, it's tinfoil
2: hat stuff, again, where it's, it's just... the construction of a bogeyman. Yeah. But people who went along to this... Uh, in a journal, that list comes from a journalist who went to interview LaRouche and anybody going to those offices in New York, which were rather, were rather dirty but full of industrious young people working on typewriters and setting up, in effect, a private intelligence agency, an intelligence agency that actually, from time to time proved rather useful to real intelligence agencies mm-hmm. or at least useful enough for them to subscribe to their literature because they had contacts all over the world and they would ring up, uh, they would ring up um, um, embassies, they would ring up companies, uh, they would ring up air bases and, and um, just try and blag information. Um, out of these people, and then they collated it and produced these reports. So it was a, w- a weird hive of conspiracist activity.
1: Well, and for them, the, the wonderful coincidence is that this is a time right during when agency and FBI misdeeds are being swept up and exposed to the public, with the Church and Pike Committee and the, the Rockefeller Commission, yes. and <laughs> chaos gets. Broken during this yeah. time becomes public. I uh, believe was it Sy Hirsch or somebody like he, he that? Was he the was the first person to. He couldn't name it, but
2: rather like an astronomer
1: detects a black hole by yeah. the, the 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 bending of the light. He saw that it was there. And then, as you mentioned, Operation Destruction, that the the natural destruction of the files. Which, if you're a conspiracy theorist, you're not going to accept the no. fact that files are. Going to be destroyed as have part to be. of the just law, to be, yes. uh, but yeah. So all of this just amplifies this crazy at a time when it, it doesn't really need to be amplified already, uh, and, and kind of comes together and re- really comes perfectly together for the Carter nomination. Yeah. in 1976. Yeah. And, and so uh, to me, what's interesting is that there's no political party affiliation really about this. It's, it's, it's Rockefeller. Rockefeller is obviously a Republican and the, the anti-Republicanism of the Rockefeller stuff. But then there's a Democrat in Jimmy Carter that becomes the target. Yeah. To be a member today of the LaRouche organization, which still exists in a rather you
2: know, a pleasingly depleted form. Um, you have to. You have to um, accept that one day you're going to be at war with Eurasia, and by the end of the week you're going to be at war with Oceania. Those. F- those, it's called a necessary deviation by Trotskyist uh, theorists. But this idea that you prove the loyalty of the group by just asking them to believe the opposite of what you were campaigning for um, last week. Yes. So in a way, it depends upon these these, um, these flips. They're part of the way the organisation has functioned. Um, in the 2016 election campaign, they produced a song called Don't Be a Chump for Trump. Well, now... They're um they're, they're all signed up to the Trump project now. Well, they popped up in the Steele dossier.
1: Yeah. Right. So the, this is yeah. So yes. again, guys, this is all the fault of the British. Right. Well, yeah, we'll get to, we'll get to that in a second because <laughs> I think that's interesting. But guys, it, 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 the Steele dossier that we all know about, and we're not talking about long time ago history here. Yes, we're talking about 1974, 1976. But the La, La, the Larouche organization is in the Steele dossier about you know the the unconfirmed slash partially confirmed uh, information about uh, Trump's yeah. relationship with Russia. Um, and uh, I, was, I was laughing when I read that. And Over the just- years, many people
2: have left the LaRouche organization because they began to be afraid of, what, of who the information they were collating was being sold on to and what kind of loyalties the leadership of that group had to overseas. Operators right. of one sort or another. Um, so there were connections between um, the the LaRouche organization and and the Russians. Uh, well documented ones, open ones uh, in a way. Um, and uh, and yes, there they are in the in the steel dossier. And you know, even today. The the Washington bureau chief of Larouche's magazine, which is ba- barely you know limps along. It used to be rather glossy. Now it's essentially just a, a website that uh, drops a couple of articles each week. Um, who is the former leader of the American Deserters Committee, Bill Jones? Um, so he's made a very bizarre journey from uh, from desertion to leading this group in Sweden, and now. You know, if you watch the, the broadcasts from the, uh, the you watch the president's press spokesperson uh, talking to the press in that room, you sometimes see Bill Jones. I saw him last time I saw him. He was asking a question of of, uh, of Sean Spicer. The idea that, that right. he could follow that path and end up there.
1: Well, you got you know New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Fox News, and then the little yeah. Organization, well, these organizations
2: room. are perhaps more more
1: favoured than they once were. Oh. Well, you mentioned the, the antipathy toward the British, and I think that's where we, we laughed about kind of targeting Nelson Rockefeller, but Nelson Rockefeller doesn't stand a chance when it comes to the magisterial power of Queen Elizabeth II, who yes. is a lizard person, as far as I can tell, or, or a cyborg. She's everything
2: but. No, 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 or, no she's or. cute. She's, she's clearly human, but that's where, that's where, the, that's where the good bits stop. Um, LaRouche, for a long time, was I think because he had failed to set up an organization in Britain. At the beginning of the 70s, he tried very hard to establish an outpost in London, and it failed, and it failed, he thought, because of this brainwashing war that was being waged against him. So he's always been rather allergic to Britain, And that objection to Britain built was the basis for a very elaborate conspiracy theory that states that, that some of the deserters were involved in the construction of producing the literature to support it, that the Queen was running the international drugs trade. Um, but the Queen had a secret plan to start World War III that she concocted with uh, the philosopher Bertrand Russell in the 60s. And some the, of the Be- Beatles were in The Beatles, involved, Beatles were in it because yeah. the Beatles were established um, by the British secret state to demoralize America. And it worked.
1: Yeah, so the CIA can claim all sorts of things, but MI6 is, has the Beatles, it, the greatest covert yeah. action in history, I guess. Yeah. But. Oh, and that's when Henry Kissinger kind of gets sucked into this as well.
2: Yes. Um, if you, uh, very old listeners, might remember that uh, that Kissinger and the Queen um, were featured in Lyndon LaRouche Masterpiece
1: Theatre on Saturday Night Live yes. in the 80s. Well, and then, you know, you, you never become somebody, as actually Ringo Starr said. And <laughs> so you're a character on The Simpsons.
2: Yes. Yeah. And indeed, yes, we have Homer Simpson aboard an alien spacecraft saying, "Oh my God, Lyndon LaRouche was right." But the Queen, he chose the Queen for the same reason that he chose uh, Rockefeller. The Queen is the perfect uh, basis for conspiracy theory because she will never reply right. to any of this. It's I, I genuinely wonder whether she's ever heard of him.
1: Well, but the CIA did because you found yeah. some interesting files from I got was it. Um, which, which DCI uh, was talking about the LaRouche organization, how crazy they were? Was it uh, – who was it? Was it um, Colby? Colby as a DCI was like, do we have to take the you – know, these guys are Absolutely, saying some crazy yes. shit. We, and also, they were saying, really, if you want to blame anybody
2: for this, blame the FBI. Yeah. We do the overseas yes. stuff. <laughs> um, but, but despite that, there were – the LaRouche organization did have these moments where they had like semi-official contact with, uh, with, with the CIA or people employed by the CIA. Um, Admiral Bobby Inman took meetings with them. Um, the Reagan transition team took meetings with them.
1: Well, Reagan's pet project, SDI, was the, the pet project – of the Larouche. Workers. Well Larouche claims almost claims to have thought of it himself
2: <laughs> now. Um the story his, his the credit he can take has got greater and greater as time has rolled on. And of course it was a, it was it was the British who stymied that mm. project, who poisoned that and 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 stopped that from happening.
1: So I mean, we're, we're laughing at this and we're smiling as we talk about it but it seemed to have had real-world implications and, and I'm thinking of the assassination of the Swedish prime minister <laughs> yeah. Olaf Palme it's obviously quasi unsolved i mean they they've arrested somebody for him and there there are all sorts of back and forth about it but it seems hard to argue that it wasn't somehow tied into this, this well it's it's very
2: murky this um and what we can say is that the successor organisation of the American Deserters Committee, the Swedish outpost of the Lyndon LaRouche organisation, a Swedish political party called the EAP, were very much the, the um, uh, were very energetic in spreading the most vile propaganda about uh, Olaf Palmer, Um the Prime Minister of Sweden, who had welcomed in the deserters, mm-hmm. um, ironically, and the organisation in Sweden was uh, was at that time run by. Cliff Gaddy, and and his wife, uh, Shaston Gaddy. Um, So we have them on that scene, and I'm absolutely not suggesting that they had any material involvement with this, but they put out hideous literature that created a climate which I think that it would be very easy to argue made an event like that more likely. And certainly they were so connected with the idea of Propaganda, vicious, nasty propaganda against Palmer that when he was assassinated, many members of the public rang into the investigation to to name both the party and them, suggest these people need checking out.
1: Mm. So I want to bring things around full circle as we wrap up. There's a lot of fascinating characters in this book, and there's one that really is almost a postscript. There's maybe a paragraph or two about somebody that I pulled out because it really mattered to me, and that's a man named Bo Burlingham. And what he says... I, I I kind of put an extra highlight next to it because it seemed potentially to me to encapsulate the entire book. And he basically no one really believed in any of this stuff. It was all performance art. It was yeah. all taking on a character. Yeah. Like it, it, no one truly like bought into this nonsense. That stood out to me, yeah. right? That to me that kind of defines the book. Did did you as you were talking to these people? Because a lot of them are reform crazies now. If you want to use that. They're, you know they've come to their senses they're they're living in the Washington DC area in many cases and they're just normal people that don't really want to talk about this crazy time yeah. in their past. It was a kind of
2: game. There was a lot of theatricality. Um, it, it encouraged, uh, it attracted people who were interested in cloak and dagger stuff, interested in mystery, in meeting people who you qu- weren't quite sure who they were in Paris cafes, this kind of thing. So there was an element of, of performance. And I think, you know, people in the who were in the SDS were, were bitten by that same bug and now look back on what they were doing there right. as, a, as a kind of moment of magic. Bo Burlingham is one of them. He now writes business books, um, despite having been indicted um, during his SDS years. But the thing is, it was a game, but it was a game that people lived their lives by, Mm -hmm. and it destroyed some of those lives. So there are casualties in this story. And whilst it has its absolutely farcical elements to it. And it is in a way like trying to describe a dream Mm -hmm. that all of these people got caught up in. It did change their lives. And then most of them who are still living today are still living with the consequences of all of this.
1: So who is the spy? (laughs) (laughs) Could you just, I'll just, if you turn the microphone. Yes, right. So, so you don't get sued. I won't make you answer that question. Um, Matthew Sweet is the author of Operation Chaos, the Vietnam Deserters Who Fought the CIA, the Brainwashers and Themselves. If you need a break from a stodgy history book on intelligence, this is the one. Uh, I, I, I openly laughed multiple times I was reading this I, I kn- to the annoyance of my coworkers, uh, and then I second-guessed everything I had read, or, and then triple-guessed and quadruple-guessed. Uh, but it is a fascinating look into this time period where uh, who the hell knows what was true, and that's what makes it so much fun. So, Matthew, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thanks
2: so much, Vince.
1: The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution to help support future educational programming. Please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hey, all. Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network.